Hello, and you are listening to Squash Radio. This is a brand new podcast that wants to bring the inside of squash to life by serving up the best stories. We've already gotten great feedback from listeners who help point us towards new stories to share, but we're always looking for more. So if you have a story you think is interesting, please reach out. But here is where we still need help. We are small, but have big dreams. Can you help us get the word out and spread the news? Small things like, do you have a website and want to include Squash Radio? Well, it's super simple to do and boom, Squash Radio can be right there with new episodes loaded automatically. Or can you support us on social media by following us or liking us? Anything is extremely appreciated. Well, there are lots of ways to get in touch with us, any of the social media apps, or just email us at squashradio at gmail.com. That's squashradio at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening, and we hope you enjoy. What about this? This call is being recorded. Hey there, Squash fans. Welcome back to Squash Radio. I'm your host, Connor O'Malley. Well, I'm really excited to share this guest with you today because he is a true example and testament of Squash Radio's mission to share stories of amazing people that you might not have heard of just yet. Well, today's guest is someone who has an unyielding desire to make a positive impact on his community to improve their lives and does it all with an infectious laugh. Let me introduce you to James Dotson, who spent the majority of his time working, living, and raising his family on the south side of Chicago, but now resides in Phoenix, Arizona. In our conversation today, you will learn about James's professional career in journalism and publishing with a focus on youth media, but felt a growing frustration over the years of only reporting and documenting the problems. Enter the opportunity of Metro Squash, where James is one of the founding board members of the Urban Squash Program dedicated towards improving the lives of underserved children on Chicago's South Side. James has served on the board of Metro Squash for 13 years, including being chairman. He also helped to raise over $8 million needed to build their new home facility. But just as importantly, he has also been a mentor for the students. James is trying to spread and repeat the success of Metro Squash, but this time in Phoenix by launching Arizona Squash Inc. with the same mission to enrich students' lives through squash. We hope you enjoyed today's episode as you get to know more about James Dotson and enjoy the show. Well, hey there, Squash fans. Welcome to another episode of Squash Radio. I'm your host, Connor O'Malley. Well, today I'm really excited to have uh, our guest here today. And he's someone that I've actually known for almost 15 years now. And that is James Dotson, who is originally from Chicago, but now resides in Phoenix, Arizona. Welcome to the show, James. Thank you, Connor. Glad to be here. Yeah. Well, before we get into the meat of the story, which is, you know, this, your your connection to squash and, and all the different aspects you've been involved in the sport, both as a player, but then also really driving the growth of the game within urban squash. I want to give the listeners a little bit of background about you and your professional career. Would you mind sharing um, a little bit of your uh, your history? Sure. I spent most of my career as a uh, journalist uh, slash uh, publisher. 
Um, I started out as uh, a young journalist, photojournalist in Chicago um, years ago, covering youth and poverty issues in Chicago for something called Youth Communications. And it just kind of, you know, just engaged me to a point where I just took off with a career. I, after winning the award from the Robert Kennedy Memorial Foundation uh, and starting college, I actually took off a year to work for the foundation in Copper Capitol Hill in D.C. And um, it just continued on. And I continued on the progression to move into positions on daily newspapers. I worked for a company called Knight Ritter, worked in Detroit, St. Paul, Minnesota. Um, I also worked for other companies, uh, the Cleveland Plain Dealer, but the peak of my career in the newspaper business was in St. Paul, and even that was kind of a squash connection. Uh, Bernie Ritter was a All-American Princeton uh, player, and he would stalk the halls, and I played uh, squash uh, uh, in St. Paul, Minnesota. But, you know, the, the, everything's relative. Uh, I was newly married and uh, living in Minnesota, and it was just cold. Uh, my wife and I wound up moving back to Chicago. <laughs> you know, everything's relative. And uh, being back in my hometown, Chicago, I started... Uh, a newspaper for black senior citizens. I had great success uh, publishing actually special sections for a Knight Ritter. And so when I went out on my own, I focused on a community that I really wanted to acknowledge. And that was folks to help raise me. Uh, most of my black seniors uh, in the city of Chicago, African-Americans, I'm um, over the age of 50 and supported them with information about, uh, you know, maintaining finances, good health, um, and being engaged in the community. And growing up in Chicago, particularly among that group of people in Chicago is, I think, at least the community I grew up in was very notable for its engagement uh, in politics and, you know, community organizing and supporting itself and doing well. So I just really want to acknowledge that crowd when I started the uh, Renaissance newspaper. But after that, I went on to uh, focus on youth media. Kind of went back to my roots and spent a lot of time supporting young people in learning about journalism and practicing journalism. And the young people I worked with mostly were in the South Shore community. And the kids really took on, you know, what was happening around them in their world. Uh, South Shore had, had a huge influx of what we call Section 8 homes, people really needing support from HUD uh, housing. And there was a lot of violence in Chicago, even back then. Uh, the young people picked up on that because many of the people who were moving into the community were somehow related to uh, to gangs or uh, drug sales, and it was showing up. I mean, kids really were terrified. And uh, this community, the kids identified as Terror Town uh, way back then. And they were you know, writing about what it was like living in that uh, community. In what period of time? School. This was in the uh, the 90s. Okay. And we also looked at uh, you know, issues like uh, you know economic issues, you know, following the white tea in terms of manufacturing, where things mm -hmm. uh, originate, how they're made, uh, how they're marketed. And what's the impact on local communities? So it was an exciting time. I mean, it kind of went back to my initial roots, just covering, again, young people in poverty. As you were talking, one of the questions I want to ask you was, um, you said you, you work with uh, developing uh, young, talented writers or journalists. And I'm curious, what tips or do you find yourself giving most often to, to try and uh, help them improve? Um, to really follow your passion. The exciting thing for me growing up as a photojournalist was the joy of having the camera in my hand, being able to observe so much and see so much and capturing it and then have a reason to publish it, to help tell a story about a young person's life or to tell that story in a graphic way. You know, when I think about it now, I mean, really, it's kind of the same thing. Tell students in, in urban squash or metro squash, you know, follow mm -hmm. your passion. 
when I was a photojournalist, I was, you know, I was in the dark room. I mean, back then everything was uh, still chemical production, but I would spend hours and hours, you know, in the dark room developing prints for what we call a publication called Retrospec, which was uh, a photo magazine of Chicago teenagers. And, um, you know, it just seemed like it's just such an easy thing to do. But I mean, the amount of hours I spent doing that was amazing. I mean, it was just way over the top. But I mean, it was a love, it's a passion, and it's carried me for a long, long way. And we've benefited, and my family's benefited, you know, as a result. But same thing, I think, with uh, urban squash and, and and metro squash, particularly. You know, kids just are, are hooked by squash, and that just carries them, you know, into after-school tutoring. You know, the whole thing, cultural enrichment and civic engagement. You just kind of follow your passion. Yeah, it's that driver that allows you to accomplish uh, so much more. I I've known you a long time, and you know, I know you're, you're, you're very generous. You're very humble. So this next question may be hard for you to answer, but I want you to share with the listeners because I'm curious about what the, the answer is too. But I want you to share like one of your, just something that you're most proud of within your professional career or what, what's a success story you can share, you know, when you look back on, on your, your experience. And with regard to youth media, um, mm-hmm. I think it's the idea that, well, it's, Definitely to seeing young people learning the business. You know, we published a newspaper in Chicago called New Expression, which was totally by teens for teens. Uh, and it was the fourth largest newspaper in the city, you know, after uh, the Sun-Times, Tribune, and the, uh, the weekly oh, alternative wow. paper. And, uh, you know, just being engaged uh, in covering ourselves, you know, really just being able to tell our stories as young people was amazing. And, you know, growing up, I saw the value of that with regard to community development. I mean, a community, a thriving community really has a media and has a need for our media to keep people engaged, whether it's, you know, the business of the community, uh, business leaders, small business, large businesses, and people need to know about what's going on there. But people also need to know about what's going on with regard to, um, you know, crime issues, need to know and need to hear good stories about what their neighbors are doing. I just love to see young people taking that on amongst themselves. Unfortunately, I think in the United States, you know, so much media is geared towards adults. Um, we just don't hear enough about what young people are doing from young people. And I think if we had more of that, you know, we would have uh, better schools. We'd have better after-school programs. We'd have much more engaged young people in civic uh, civic life. And I think, guys. Uh, you know, one of the, the, the greatest tragedies that's coming up is, you know, net neutrality. I mean, really just having a free access to the web, um, the Internet. I think we you know we've had a lot of great success with media. Tie that up and to tie up a young person's access or community's access to media is a tragedy. And we you know, need to make uh, public information available freely. You know, it's a real passion of mine. I think it's something that we really have to strive for. I mean, freedom of speech is an important thing. I'm encouraging young people to speak freely and realize the power of their voice, whether it's you know in voice or on radio or uh, in print. They have to be able to tell their story, share what's going on in their lives. I completely agree. And you bring up an interesting point. I don't think I really considered is is making sure that the teenagers or youth have ways to tell their their stories and. I can imagine your initiative just being so empowering to them, having that kind of huge mechanism at their disposal and being able to share. How did the students react to to it? I think that from having produced the media, helped produce the media, 
you know, just seeing the audience response to uh, the magazines, through the radio shows we did, people, the students, young people just engaged. When I grew up, it was Chicago at a different time. I mean, it was, uh, it wasn't necessarily fully thriving, but I, I lived in a community where, you know, my neighbors were very successful, hardworking people. And, you know, just working to maintain a good, good neighborhood, a safe neighborhood to grow a family. And so when uh, we, you know, we start writing about things that are going on, I mean, people responded well to stories about their friends, um, responded well to, you know, things that were going on around them. But as you know, we were teens. So, you know, the big things for us were parties. Uh, my high school, I went to a Catholic boys school. We had something called uh, the Mendel Bilevel Jam. You know, we would raise $40,000 during the summers uh, with just parties. And that, you know, kind of led into the development of uh, house music in Chicago. Many of the DJs went on to be very successful, and it was a good time. I mean, I think coming back or later on, you know, realizing that a lot of those, you know, parties uh, and students were vulnerable to a lot of gang activity. I mean, when I came back to Chicago, went back to Chicago, that was the feedback. And, you know, the economy just changed such that uh, so many you know, jobs were lost, manufacturing was leaving. In my high school, you know, it was, it was a thriving uh, Mile Square campus, you know, was struggling, you know, struggling to keep uh, students, uh, paid students engaged, involved. And uh, eventually became a public school and coincidentally became the Gwendolyn Brooks uh, College Prep, which was exciting for me because I had worked for Third World Press, the oldest continuing publisher in Chicago, which was Gwendolyn Brooks' publisher uh, for years and years. But, uh, you know, the city of Chicago has changed so much, but very much a media town. And so opportunities to engage, you know, as a young journalist, as a journalist, uh, period, are great. And it's just something I like to see continue. But I got to say that, you know, one of the things about covering youth and poverty particularly is, you know, that story about after school. And I think after school matters to me because that's where I picked up my skills as a journalist. It's so important for a young person to have something to do in the afternoon. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, you know, I mean, now um, kind of just transitioning into the, the squash portion of it. I mean, this this just gives so much context in terms of your involvement with Metro Squash. And we were fortunate to be able to engage you to become one of the founding board members. And I don't think I'd realize as much. <laughs> that- you go on, I got to say, I got to say you engaged me. I mean, I had, <laughs> uh, you know, I've been playing squash for you know, you know, a number of years. I need to have my hips replaced. And you know, this is the power of the glass court, right? Uh, University Club is hosting the Windy City, the first glass court event. This is probably back in 2004. It is 2004. And, you know, I was such a fanatic. I decided to have one hip done in advance of the tournament so I could watch the tournament and then go back and have the other side done. But you and your infinite wisdom, you know, catch me. Well, I'm sitting there, on, you know, with my crutches, uh, watching the <laughs> watching the tournament, and you know, say, Mr. Dotson, would you be willing to help me start an urban squash program? And I was like, Oh, just make this ball stop hitting the glass wall. I was so heavily medicated that my, the, the ball would hit the glass, and it was just like a thump against my head. But you asked, and I coincidentally had just read the article in Newsweek about uh, squash busters, so I knew something about what you were talking about. So it was a no-brainer to say, Sure, Con, I'd be more than willing to help out because. I don't even know if I'm going to be able to play squash anymore, but certainly I can help in the classroom. And, you know, this is a real connection for me between what I did in terms of covering youth and poverty and actually being able to do something about it. As a journalist, we're just, we're observers, you know, and I had the privilege of working with a guy named David Hackett, who was Bobby Kennedy's best friend 
and who you know piloted the first programs that we now know as the War on Poverty programs. I mean, these things are just so well done and so engaging with regard to communities. People really had to think from the bottom up, think about what they wanted in terms of being funded and moving forward with the project. Uh, Harambe and Bedford-Stuyvesant, New York, and a lot of programs around the country. But for me, when you asked me to help out, it was, you know, I, I'm not an observer anymore. I just, you know, I get to help kids directly in a program that married, you know, my passion, squash and the power of education. And this is, and in Chicago, it's just so amazing. You know, John Flanagan was there, you know, doing these things. And now when I look back and knowing that you got the, uh, you know, you got the glass court event for 2018, the Windy City, and it's, you know, it's 500, you know, K and it's parody, you know, it's equal pay. That's what we were able to do in Chicago. And I think Urban Squash, Metro Squash particularly, was very instrumental in, in getting that started. I mean, when Metro Squash hit the ground and we got it going, it was really, you know, about growing the community, engaging the community. It was just people were looking for something to give their funds to, to give their support to, to volunteer. You really hit the nail on the head, Connor, I think, when you started things up. I mean, you, you were smart enough, and I'm thankful for that, to engage Jackie Moss, you know, <laughs> Claire Manana. These are two extraordinary women. I mean, they just pushed forward. Bart McMillan and Ildi, they got all the paperwork done, got that thing through. And of course, Sam, you know, brings his mustache um, and helps <laughs> us find, uh, find David K. And then when David gets there, uh, got to Chicago, you know, things really, really took off. And I, I, it was great working with David as a, you know, as a board chair of Metro Squash. David's very respectful. I, look, I respect him greatly. And he really, you know, he followed me to reach different parts of the community of Chicago, particularly the South Side to let them know about squash and what we were trying to do. I had done a lot of work for something called the Black United Fund in South Shore, a group of uh, black nationalists for the most part, and you know, very much about you know, raising funds for, to give, I should say, raising funds to give small dollar amounts to nonprofits, to small nonprofits. And we did a lot of youth media projects with them. But you know, the interesting thing is I'm in a meeting with David, uh, visiting with a guy named Henry English who ran the, uh, the fund. And Henry tells a story about he grew up on the west side of Chicago. And he said, you know, I played squash when I was in high school. And I was floored. Yeah. You know, I'd never seen many black people playing or African-Americans playing squash. And then Henry, who is someone I looked up to, uh, a former Black Panther, you know, was telling a story about playing squash. And then I realized, uh, and he introduced me, to, tells me about other folks who had played, who were leading, you know, large Nonprofits in Chicago, uh, the Center for New Horizon with Dr. Karanja. You know, he played squash um, as a football player, you know, during the offseason. He played squash at, at Wash University. But, you know, David uh, and I traveled around and engaged the community in a lot of different ways. And it was really an extraordinary, a fun thing to do for, for our young people. I mean, absolutely. In retrospect, it's at the beginning, I think we we started a really solid foundation uh, in terms of the people, the, getting the right people in the room to help tackle this. Mm-hmm pretty um, ambitious uh, vision. And it, it really, I think I was young and dumb enough that I didn't know what I didn't know. And that really helped me kind of just keep pounding on doors. And um, one line that's kind of resonated with me, it's like, it's amazing what a community can accomplish when they get behind a shared vision. And I think that's just by one person at a time, we really built up a just an amazing collection of people and, and willing to support this initiative. I mean, you're a huge reason for that success. But really, we did all that because... We wanted to make an impact on the community. And I'd love for you to share just kind of a favorite story of yours about any of the Metro Squash students and whether it's a moment or kind of a, throughout their experience, you know, you saw them from day one and where they are now. <laughs> 
Of course, I mean, it's Don Hall, who is my mentee, someone, a young man I met at the very beginning. You know, he's, he's been a part of Metro Squash from the very beginning. And, um, you know, he had been mentored by, uh, by someone else, but someone who, who left town. And so I was asked to support Don. And, you know, he just, you know, again, it's just, you know, it's just that passion. I mean, he loves the sport. Uh, How old was he when you, when you met him? Oh, God, he met to be about 10, 10 or 11. Oh, my gosh. You know, we start uh, young people in fifth and sixth grade. And uh, he was part of that uh, first uh, first cohort. You know, he had a lot of he had braids, um, a lot of beads. <laughs> I think about that now. But he has uh, a wonderful mom and grandma who supported him. And uh, you know, what I see, I don't know if it's different from from any you know from others who participate in Metro Squash. But I mean, I saw people who I saw people from where they where they lived and the community. You know, Don lived uh, about a half a mile from where I lived in Chicago, an area that. You know, I knew a lot about growing up and, you know, it was just a joy to see that he had what it would take to succeed, to get through Kosminski, which is a huge elementary school, underperforming school. But, you know, being, and I think that really drove my participation in Metro Squash, you know, really just, and we worked with 12 kids early on, but just, you know, knowing that we were providing a massive amount of resources to young people to see that they succeed, uh, that they get into their best high school, they get into the best college. But Don, you know, just had a passion about the sport, played all the time, wanted to play all the time. And, you know, it seems as if he, you know, he saw the, uh, he saw the possibility. And that was the joy about being in relationship with him then. Today, you know, he's been out to Arizona uh, a couple of times. He, uh, he'll graduate from the University of Illinois, Springfield, and been a, been a slow route. But I think he really enjoys, I think he really enjoys uh, Springfield, being out of Chicago and working as, uh, working in the bank, you know, testing his accounting skills um, and taking his time to get through and enjoy that college life. Now, the sad thing about his experience at University of Illinois is that he wasn't able to really engage uh, with squash. I mean, they, he formed a uh, squash team, squash club with the one convertible court they had, but just keeping it going was, was tough. But he's still close enough to Chicago to get back and play and continue to play. And that's, you know, I think we need to do more of that. Just create, you know, environments where we have colleges that may not have squash programs, but at least allow our young people to stick with our programs. Um, in, this one, in this case, being Metro Squash, being close enough to be engaged, to be on court and to engage uh, with your friends and family. I'm curious in your role as mentoring Don, did you guys, what were the, the common topics of conversation that you guys would have like, you know, over the past 10 years, like w- what do you guys find yourself talking about mostly? <laughs> it's a little bit of everything, you know, it's, uh, you know, what do you, I think our first, you know, our first meeting, you know, we have, uh, we provide uh, mentors with a checklist, kind of one of those things where you kind of interview each other and you discover what the birthdays are, our favorite colors are, our favorite foods are. I can't remember any of that stuff. I just, you know, I, I, I work with the kids where they are uh, at the moment. And for Donna, a lot of it was, was squash, uh, beating me at squash, <laughs> being able to, you know, tr- I mean, to travel. The rides from uh, High Park, uh, south side of the city to, you know, out of Wincia, way up north, north suburbs, and you know, not getting caught eating junk food because, you know, there is a no junk food eating rule <laughs> with urban squash. But somehow, you know, I... You know, if I'm uh, in the car with the with the uh, with the kids uh, commuting to uh, a tournament, I always stop off and you would get something. 
You know, it's just really about where where Down was at the time. My last visit in Chicago, he has my girlfriend and, um, you know, just chatting about, you know, what's what's going on, what's going on on campus, you know, what he's doing for the, you know, for that weekend. And that's really it. It's just a joy, you know, just being with the person at that time. Well, it's not the best antidote, but. <laughs> no, no, it's, you know, it's. That is the journey. You know, a lot of it, I mean, the big thing is just being there. Right. And I think both ways being able to openly share and, and the consistency is what's important. And I think I'd struggle to answer a question like that too. I think it's just different with, it's different with different students. I mean, there's Cameron Warren yeah. who is uh, graduating now. Cameron, I've, I've known his brother, his father for years and years. His father is actually his grandfather was pastor of my church growing up in no, no uh, way. Chatham. And, wow. uh, his father, uh, was, uh, a year or two behind me at Howard University. Um, his uncle, actually, we were in the same year um, at Mendel in high school. Um, so I'm really excited for, for Cameron now. He's being recruited uh, to play squash. You know, he's really, his excitement with regard to squash and academics, and Metro squash in particular, is, is infectious. You know, it's really contagious. Had a chance to visit with uh, uh, Shirley Francois, who is now at Wesleyan. Uh, she was out in Arizona over the summer uh, working for Teach for, uh, Teach for America. I mean, these are young people who've gone through extraordinary uh, trials uh, at a very early age and are come, have come out very strong. They're a joy to be around. And, you know, I just that, that keeps, keeps me going. Key driver to being able to get programs like these, not just up and running, but running year round is, is basically it's fundraising. And you in your role as board chair and having been on the board of directors of Metro Squash for 12 years now, have been uh, very close to those fundraising efforts. And I was wondering if you could share, what do you wish you had known from the beginning that we could share? And um, what surprised you in that process? And squash was a real eye-opener. I mean, Urban Squash was amazing to me as an organization. I mean, I started with a, a journalism program as a kid growing up. That program uh, peaked at about the size of Metro Squash, just, about, just before it was about to build the facility. But it petered out because the change in industry, and we depended a lot on institutions, the Tribune Company, other newspaper companies, and things were changing. And, and that organization, New Communications, floundered. We were always struggling. Um, but what I found with Urban Squash, I mean, really, again, it was about that passion. In Chicago, there's so many squash players and the squash community who were willing to, to give of their time and their finance to make Metro Squash work. And it was just that connection, that passion for the sport and the kids that really turned the trick. Um, I mean, that still amazes me and how we do that around the country and around the world now with, with Urban Squash. Um, it was just so much easier in terms of building an organization than nonprofits around the city of Chicago. You know, in fact, you know, Metro Squash had taken over space in terms of office space from one of the oldest nonprofits, Blue Gargoyle, that served youth in, in Hyde Park in the South Side. That organization had gotten so involved with uh, state funding that when the state began to slow pay or didn't pay, it just went under. But Metro Squash really consciously steered away from a lot of government funding and focused on individual giving. And it worked. It, it was a success. And it's still a success. But it really takes, you know, someone like David Kay you know, you know, to be willing to go anywhere and everywhere to engage, you know, uh, squash players and donors. Yeah, um, I mean, he's relentless and determined and just such a great skill set for tackling those big daunting challenges. And I actually don't have the number in front of me in terms of total dollars raised to date, but it's got to be close to at least 20 million by now, if not, I mean, oh, absolutely. Worth, of, 
Yeah, and, um, and the big announcement is the the three point seven five million uh, that was raised just within the last uh, two months. Uh, exactly. Or announced this within the last two months at our, our gala. I mean, that's on top of what was raised to build the facility. You know, it's really you know Metro Squash is the story where about really where everybody you know contributes. You know, we have so many donors from the North Shore of Chicago willing to give to this entity on the south side of the city, which I think is you know fairly unusual. But it's because of the passion for the sport and willing to support our young people when succeeded. On Wincia, uh, the club up north, the racket club, you know, Peter Dunn is amazing. You know, and of course, the university club, you know, where it all kind of all got started. I mean, it's just, you know, everybody plays their part. I mean, the U club is very instrumental in terms of, you know, younger players, the auxiliary uh, program. When a lot of old folks like us can't be on court, you know, there's the auxiliary team, that, you know, really is engaging our kids as mentors and playing uh, with them on, on court um, and acting as tutors. You know, everybody it, gets to play. It's crazy to think in, and this was kind of the vision from the beginning for it to be community oriented, but it's amazing. It really became a lightning rod for the squash community within Chicago. And I think also um, a beacon in the Midwest. Back when we were starting Metro Squash, there were a lot of naysayers that this could only work on the East Coast. They wouldn't be successful. And Metro Squash was the fifth program the first one outside of the East Coast. And it is amazing. Now, in retrospect, it, look, it seems like such a foregone conclusion that it would be successful. But the path to get there, is, it was a tough journey. And there, there were obstacles along the way. Which kind of brings me to uh, the next point of now you're trying to do this again in, out in Phoenix. Well, the, and, you know, the need is great. So when you moved out to Phoenix, did you know from the, from the beginning that this was something you wanted to do? Or is there an opportunity or a moment that kind of inspired you? What I realized was that the need is great. I mean, there's a lot of students in Arizona uh, who uh, need after-school support. You know, it's just that vulnerable time. Again, after-school matters. And so um, I miss Chicago. I miss the squash community. I miss, you know, the U Club uh, being able to play. I miss Metro Squash being on court with the kids and, you know, just having a great time. And so... Uh, being in Arizona, you know, I spent a lot of time with my two kids. Well, actually, I got to say, with, with Julius, uh, uh, my son, who had picked up you know, squash, you know, with you back in the U Club. But moving to Arizona, you know, it was really about, well, what next? I mean, he wanted to have a, a college squash career, but doing that in the desert was going to be tricky. So we wound up. Fortunately, we had uh, Dave Foley with his home court in Arizona, in Phoenix. So I should, uh, yeah, it's Phoenix. Technically, it's Phoenix. You know, he was uh, supportive. We engaged uh, the village racket clubs. Uh, Julius played everywhere in the Valley. In the village clubs, uh, Lifetime uh, Fitness, which had an extraordinary uh, squash community. You had, a, you know, just with four courts, um, you had adults willing to play kids and, you know, share that court time. But it was too far for us really to go on a, on a daily basis, on a regular basis. And unfortunately, you know, his Lifetime demolished two, two courts there, and that, that whole program was kind of slowed down a bit. But, you know, really it was about supporting Julius and uh, getting into college, playing squash. And once, you know, he was on a good path, I began to focus on, on urban squash in, in the Valley. And, it's, you know, not knowing a lot of people in Arizona, I discovered uh, an incubator uh, called, called SeedSpot that really supports, you know, startups. And startups, I got involved. all kinds of startups or? Um, all kinds so of startups. Okay. Um, all kinds of startups, tech startups, uh, nonprofits, a little bit of everything. And so I went in as a nonprofit and wanted to start uh, urban squash, uh, what we call Arizona squash. And, um, you know, what it allowed me to do is, to, you know, develop the structure, 
urban squash has been validated in 20 cities, you know, around the U.S., um, which is a good thing. But what really I was looking for was connections to city government, to the schools, to donors, the donor community in the Valley. And that's really what we worked on with SeedSpot. We came up with a plan and we, we, you know, we pitched to 1,300 people back in December of 2016, you know, Arizona Squash made that announcement and, you know, it's been good. We've made great contacts. We, you know, I'm developing relationships with a local school, uh, Empower uh, College Prep has a 500 uh, student elementary school on the campus of a local church uh, that also has six racquetball courts. We're going to convert two of those courts to squash. We have, uh, you know, students from Grand Canyon University coming on board to tutor the kids uh, after school. And we're also, uh, you know, being very ambitious. We're supporting uh, Grand Canyon University in developing a club team. So we're really working to grow squash uh, in the Valley. I hope to, at some point, work with Arizona State as well. But for right now, I think we've got a good group of partners to grow squash uh, in the desert. Um, so I'm very much excited about that. You know, I'm thankful to Seed Spot and thankful to, you know, the motto, Urban Squash. But the, the key thing is, you know, having the donors. So of course, we're looking for, you know, key donors to uh, support us for the long haul. But, it's you know, it's just an exciting time. You know, Julius is now playing squash at Williams. He got beat bad uh, by uh, Drexel uh, last weekend uh, where my daughter Alex went. You know, running to, uh, of course, John White, Coach White, who was very supportive of Metro Squash early on. And we developed a good relationship. You know, Dr. Z, Dr. Zilmer has been a good supporter. Um, and I actually had a chance to sit down just briefly with uh, President John Fry, you know, at Drexel. And, you know, he has a good relationship with uh, Arizona State University. Hopefully something can come up back. But, you know, the squash community is just um, amazing. And just kind of, I'm really just riding the tide. It took me a little bit longer to get things started in Arizona, but we're on our way now. Um, again, I got to thank John, Dave Foley, and all the squash players in the Valley. We just had our tryouts actually last weekend, uh, actually last week. And we had, uh, you know, uh, geez, 13 volunteers out with the kids going through tryouts, interviewing them on court with the students and, you know, working out the academic drills. And it's just, you know, it's really, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's fun. It's hugely fun. So it's a fantastic time, Con. I don't well, know why it- anybody would want to do it. <laughs> well, I think, uh, and hopefully with your deep involvement in Metro Squash, I mean, just porting over that, that knowledge and, and experience there, but, you know, each community kind of has its own challenges. So I'm curious, you know, rewinding the clock and your part, you're at Seed Spot, and what are some of the early mm-hmm. challenges that you're facing to even get this off the ground? It's really finding the courts. First thing first, you know, it took two years to find the courts, at least to, conf- you know, to have the University of Chicago allow Metro Squash to use the courts, you know, those old hardball courts. I think it's an achievement to be able to find the racquetball courts that we're now going to use within, you know, six months. The challenge now is to find the funding to convert those courts. But I think, you know, in terms of location, uh, the partners, it's a fantastic opportunity. And how did the relationship or uh, with Empower come about? Again, it's just kind of being within that startup community. Uh, Phoenix has something called Yes Phoenix. It really is all about supporting startups and uh, new ventures. So you have the philanthropic community with the Arizona Community Foundation, the Social Ventures Partnership. You know, all, we were all encouraged to participate. And it was just through a fair of the Social Venture Partnership that I met Naquana Mitchell, a young woman who's the Advancement Director at Empower School. And she said, our school, we, we're on a campus. We have a racquetball courts right there. Would those work? And, you know, I said, yes, definitely. Let's, let's go. And uh, coincidentally, she's a Drexel alum. 
And uh, so I'm really excited to be working with her in the school. Um, she has a real passion for what we're doing because she is a former opera singer. Mm. Uh, grew up uh, in uh, upstate New York, more rural area. But, you know, she had similar experiences, you know, kind of, you know, that having a passion for music. It's over to, you know, to get through college, to do well in college. So she sees, you know, the value of, uh, of squash and academics and where it can take you. I think, well, the, you know, just narrowing down what it is personally I like to achieve with Arizona squash. It's slightly different than I think with Metro squash in the sense that I, I think I like to continue the possibilities for all the urban programs. I think we need to have more uh, universities and schools that are better fits for our students academically and also have squash. And I think when I, well, one of the reasons why I'm excited about uh, Grand Canyon University is that it's, it's a fast-growing university. It's a Christian-based school, but it's really a value-based in the sense that they really instill all of their students to give back to the local community. And thus, that's where their students, their students volunteer and they're supporting us in our program. But it's a very nurturing campus. And so I'm looking forward to the possibility of having more of our students from around the country, um, our squash players from around the country, think about Grand Canyon as a school, a college to attend. Uh, it'll, it will have a strong squash community and a nurturing environment to see them through. And um, how big is uh, Grand Canyon? I think it's about 15,000 students now, but I mean, the goal is really to go big. I mean, they, they're ramping up to be, to be 30,000 students, I believe. And they're, you know, wow. they're, they're doing it at a very fast clip. So their need is to have programs or clubs to engage those students as those students come on board. I think that's why they're excited about squash because they see the possibility of competing at the club level with schools in California, all over the country, really. I mean, this school is really going big. They, they brought on a D1. They have uh, introduced a D1 basketball program in the last year. They brought on uh, professional players. The former uh, owner of the Phoenix Suns is very much involved with the university um, in developing the basketball program, the business school. And so, they're, you know, they're making a run for it. exciting bit of it. It's great when you can have, I mean, partnerships in order to be successful are key. And it sounds like they're potentially going to be a, a willing and able partner with the right fostering of the relationship. But there's also, uh, you and I have talked about a young alum who's also a squash player from Grand Canyon. And I was wondering if you could share that quick story. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's Mohamed El Shabini, who is a fabulous squash player and who passed through uh, Arizona to play a tournament, I think, at Lifetime. And uh, he's on, on the, it was, he's a very high level uh, squash player, um, a contemporary of Ali Farag, who some say, you know, uh, would have beaten Ali Farag years ago. But, you know, he's a very high level. Just for context, Ali Farag is um, the Harvard graduate who's now, I want to say, uh, top five ranking in the world. And um, him and his wife just won the, the U.S. Open, which was a, a, a record setter. But Muhammad's uh, sister is... His cousin. His cousin is Noor. Cousin Noor, mm-hmm. who's number one in the world. And so, you know, Muhammad uh, wanted to go pro. And he did go pro. He was playing TSA. He played the tournament at Tempe. He did uh, did very well. And his, I, think, I think it was a surprise to his parents that, you know, he playing on the pro tour. Um, their expectations was that he was going to be playing at a Harvard or a Yale. I mean, but he wasn't recruited by those schools. He didn't make it in. But he, he made it on tour. He decided to go pro. And his parents said, you know, you need to finish college. And so he winds up in Arizona and going to Grand Canyon University. 
And friends of mine told me that uh, he was in town and, again, looking f to, for support for Julius and another fine player, a young man here, Brent, uh, Brent Stein, uh, who's a, a junior, a very good player now. He and Julius you know, hit with Muhammad for a year. Muhammad uh, was on campus and he found and discovered two squash courts at a, a hotel, uh, the Sheridan uh, Hotel not far from campus. And so he was giving lessons up there. And so Julius and Brent were hitting with him uh, throughout the year. I think it was Julius's sophomore year. And it was just fantastic. I mean, he's, you know, he's very competitive. Um, he's, he's instilled, you know, he's teaching the kids, uh, Julius and Brent, you know, his level of play, his reason for being his passion. And it really made a difference, I think, in their lives and their play. So the year following year, uh, Muhammad graduated and took off uh, in celebration to Mexico on an ATV trip. He, unfortunately, the ATV turned over, tipped over. I mean, he was pinned. His arm was broken, I think, in nine places. Oh, my gosh. Uh, there was blood everywhere, he said. And he was trapped under there. He was with a couple of other players, and they had taken off to get help, but they left him out there, and they wind up in an accident, and he was pinned for nine hours. And it was just a harrowing story. Um, oh, my gosh. But he, he, too much recovery, he came back. I uh, went back to Egypt, wound up opening a, a hot yoga center, but continued his training, came back in 2016, actually 2017, to start up, start the tour again. So early this year. And by April, he's player of the month. He wins, I think, three tournaments in uh, South Africa. Coincidentally, it was the same month that Noor was uh, voted uh, you know, top female player. So the, the cousins, you know, are players of the month in April of uh, 2017. Yeah, I'm looking at his record right now, and it seems like at the beginning of January 2017, he was ranked 433rd in the world. And now mm -hmm. he's up to mm -hmm. uh, 84. So that's mm -hmm. probably one of the, the fastest rise along with uh, behind uh, Remy Shore and, and Alley. But um, wow, that's and from an injury. Gosh. Well, so Grand Canyon already has. Yeah, Grand Canyon already has um, an illustrious or successful professional squash player. Squash alum. That's Squash alum. And, <laughs> and I know, think having him around, I mean, just mentioning his name, or just actually letting them know his success, so I think that's really turned the trick with regard to their willingness to support our program. So I'm thankful for Muhammad for stepping in. He actually wrote a letter to the president advocating uh, the game at Grand Canyon University, and I'm thankful for that. Well, what else um, in terms of looking ahead at what you want for success for Arizona Squash, um, what are some of the next steps ahead of, for you? Well, our goal is to, uh, is to raise the funds to convert the courts. We'll start our program actually in January using the racquetball courts, providing you know, fitness training, a squash drill, and of course, um, tutoring after school. We're really excited to start up, convert the courts. We're also you know, raising funds to find our David Kay, uh, to find an executive director um, who has that yeah. same passion and drive and someone willing to do that in the Valley in Arizona. I think yeah. it's a fantastic location. And what's the fundraising goal that you guys are undertaking? How much? For the courts, it's 60000 And to move forward next year with regard to hiring a, a director or to raise at least another 100000 So to have that in place by the end of 2018, I think, was the ideal. Where should people go if they want to uh, support or learn more about Arizona Squash? Oh, please go to ArizonaSquash.org, our website. You can donate there. You can learn more about what we're doing. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter. <laughs> Yeah, I, I follow you guys, and um, you know, around Giving Tuesday, I told you this, but uh, you guys really nailed it. I, you know, it's a big campaign, busy time these days um, for for people's dollars, but you guys really got my attention and and stayed top of mind. So credit to you and your team for um, your social media campaign. <laughs> well, thank you for your donation. 
it's usually appreciated. I mean, it was a good time kind of getting geared up to do something like that. But again, it's you know, relying on our community. And a lot of folks stepped up who I've been working with with Seedspot. You know, the, the, you know, the mayor's office of economic development has been a big supporter. Not the mayor himself, uh, Greg Stanton. Uh, you know, he grew up in an area uh, called Metro uh, Center. And ironic, I guess coincidentally, they also had a racquetball court in this center. I think a good tribute would be to call, you know, kind of build everything over there and that's uh, Metro Center, you know, Metro Squash West. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, he's been supportive. He sees the value of squash and education and just broadening, you know, a young person's horizon. So I'm thankful for that as well. Well, before we move on to the quick fire segment of this interview, is there anything else you want to share about what's going on in Arizona? Oh, geez, beautiful place. I can see a lot of squash played here. It's a beautiful setting. You know, it's like the uh, glass court in Egypt among the pyramids, except here would be maybe among uh, Camelback Mountain. It's a beautiful setting for squash. I'm looking forward to that. We know good things can happen when you have glass court professional events, so... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the glass, the power of the glass core. No, it really is. It's, uh, I think it basically, it gives an opportunity for the community to come together and celebrate whatever it is that you want. And anytime you have community coming together uh, physically, you're going to, there's opportunity to talk and, and share great things. And I mean, really that, that was a key success to Metro Squash and, and other programs along the way. Absolutely. I mean, this is Arizona, Phoenix area, Scottsdale is really amazing because it draws so many. And there's so many Canadians you know, in the Valley. Squash is big in Mexico City. We have a lot of Mexican players who are here. Very happy and support, uh, proud of a board we have. You know, of course, there's, there seems to be a Wyant everywhere. We have <laughs> Andrew Wyant, <laughs> who is here in the Valley and is on the board of Arizona Squash. Andrew and I used to play in Chicago. We have a uh, woman, Regina Duran, who uh, grew up in Mexico City and her family built uh, its own squash court in Mexico City. Uh, she has a, an accounting firm here. We're really excited to engage Phoenix Valley in a new and different way. And I, and I think much more of an international way. I'm really happy with a number of uh, Canadian players here, players from around the world, and their willingness to give back and support Arizona Squash. Well, we can't wait to uh, follow more of this success story in the making. And no pressure on you as with your journals and publishing degree and experience to share those great stories, but I'm happy to help out in any way we can. But thank you for what you're doing for the sport kind of everywhere you go. <laughs> it's kind of like the Johnny Appleseed. What would the, you know, what would the, what would the, what would the equivalent be in squash? I guess it would be over in squash. Yeah, or, yeah, planting seeds. So let's, we're going to move into the quick fire segment, which is just Going through the standard set of questions I ask every guest and it helps unearth a little bit more about you and share some insight for others. So are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. Okay. So what is your favorite mode of transportation? Oh, I love cars. I love driving. And being in Arizona, you know, Los Angeles is just a five, six hour drive away. I can stop in and see some uh, squash play now there. Um, San Diego, another five hour trip. Can see urban squash there. I can uh, drive up to, uh, you know, the Bay Area and see my favorite, favorite non-metro squash program, uh, Squash Drive with Lauren and Pisani. Yeah, no, I love driving. And what gets you fired up? And it could be, you know, something either that is connected to squash world or just completely different that either fires you up in a really positive way or frustrating. <laughs> Community organizing uh, fires me up. It's usually rewarding and it's usually frustrating. Um, but you know, know, engaging people is engaging people, you know, uh, bringing people together. 
for, you know, for a purpose. And, uh, you know, you do what you have to do. What, I've always, what I found with the Kennedy family, with, uh, with this guy, David Hackett, you know, it's really about listening to all voices, um, engaging, reaching out, and providing access to everybody, hearing everybody, and making them a part of the plan. Well said. I wish I had known that when I was starting out, just how much you think you do it, but you really need to do more of it, how much it can help in the long run and getting oh, yeah. everyone involved. Yeah. What is your favorite movie or documentary? Oh, gosh. My favorite director is Gordon Parks. Um, when I think back, I mean, Gordon Parks is an amazing director, amazing photographer, photojournalist. He inspired me to be a photojournalist. And my all-time favorite movie, and it wasn't mentioned when uh, Squash Magazine did the list of movies uh, with Squash, uh, was Shaft. Gordon Parks directed Shaft. It was a huge hit. And actually, it's going to open again, I think, uh, sometime next year. But there's a scene when John Shaft is just sitting down talking and you can see a squash racket and his squash uh, t- uh, trophies on his uh, on his book stand. No way. Um, what, what is some yeah. of the of Gordon's um, more famous work? Well, of course, I mean, the, the movie Shaft, oh gosh, there were three, you know, in that series. <laughs> Shaft, Shaft in Africa, Shaft's Big Score. But I think Sounder, which is with Sounder, one of his movies. Oh, Connie, you got me. You know, I think what inspired me was his work as a life photographer. Um, he was also someone who lived in St. Paul, Minnesota. And, you know, I always wanted to be a life photographer. And mm-hmm. the first magazine I published was actually this retrospect when I was in high school. And uh, we, you know, we captured the same color as that uh, Life magazine, that Life logo red. But his work with, uh, as, as a fashion photographer, uh, it was amazing. Um, and also the stories that he told about uh, young people, people in general, photojournalism at its best. Yeah, no, he's have awesome. To, have to check out some of his work. What is something, and it can be either something physical or an activity that gives you disproportionate happiness? Driving the 911 Turbo to uh, Los Angeles, San Diego, and uh, San Francisco uh, gives me infinite <laughs> happiness. I could um, see that. It was part of the deal my wife and I made. Uh, you know, we moved out to Arizona because of my wife Paulette. It has been fantastic, and uh, you know, she wanted to, you know, she wanted to reach new heights as a general counsel. So she went to work for PetSmart, but it brought us out to Arizona, and so you know, drug me from. You know, Metro Squash, Chicago, my hometown. But uh, the trade-off was uh, getting this Porsche 911 Turbo. And I love it. And I love the ability to drive around fast. That makes sense of um, uh, the answer to your first question now. (laughs) Is there anything new you've been thinking of trying? It could be a, a project or it could be an activity, anything. What is new and why would you do it? I knew is I'm always open to new things, but squash keeps driving me. And so for me with uh, uh, health issues, you know, mostly arthritis issues, just maintaining the squash game is a good thing. I know that doesn't answer the question. I don't know. Uh, that can work. I mean, this is, just... this is a squash podcast, so that counts. <laughs> it's all about the squash. I'm a squash fanatic. Love to play. I have to manage, you know, how often I play. And I found great friends to hit with uh, in the Valley, uh, in Arizona. And um, that's just what I do. I think also what resonates is um, you're taking on Arizona Squash, which is a new, within the same field, but it's a whole new set of adventures and projects and challenges. So I'm sure that's keeping your plate pretty that's, full. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. I mean, every interaction, every engagement is, not, is something new and different, how to see how to tie that into what we want to do with our young people, how we want to support our young people. I mean, there's so much beauty, so much activity in Arizona, things to do. It's such a beautiful place to hike. 
Um, and of course, I'm speaking right now in uh, December when <laughs> the weather's at its best. But it's really a beautiful outdoors place. And uh, I just want the kids to take advantage of it, play some squash, travel, and do well academically. Uh, the B-Day is the best they can be. What is an inspiring talk or video that you could share with us that's easy to find on the web? One that, that struck me recently, uh, Paul had mentioned this to me, actually shared it with me. It was by Malcolm Gladwell. But, you know, he talks about, uh, tells the story of how black teachers, when the South was desegregated, the school system was desegregated, a lot of black teachers were fired. And I never knew this. But basically, you know, it wasn't so much, you know, the movement to provide quality education for our young people. You know, we needed to focus on making sure teachers were available, teachers of color, black teachers are in the classroom. Less so, you know, moving our kids to, quote-unquote, better school. And Gladwell, t- you know, tells the story much better than I do. But, you know, when I was growing up in Chicago, and why it resonates with me, i got to say, is because growing up in Chicago, we were, you know, between 1960 and 1977, there was such a movement to improve the quality of education, to have ownership of, of education for black people in the city. And, you know, there were so many young people who were coming out of the civil rights movement, the pan-Africanist movement, um, the nationalist movement. I mean, when you think about the Black Panthers, really they were about, you know, quality education, about supporting young people after school. But what I found in in Chicago is really about, you know, there's so many young people coming out of Northwestern with master's degrees, PhDs. You know, they were giving back. They were starting tutoring programs. They were starting schools, African-centered schools. My tutor wound up... You know, going to Columbia University and uh, designing the Thurgood Marshall School, coincidentally, the school that uh, Street Squash works with now. She died of cancer, and that school struggles at this point. But I mean, it's, you know, it, but the, the, you know, what has been improved and because of Urban Squash, I mean, those students uh, have the possibility and are doing great things. And I loved when George would send the kids to Chicago for the summer from uh, Street Squash. I mean, many, we hosted many of them at home, at our home in Chicago, and I still follow them. Um, it's just funny how things kind of come around. Full circle. Yeah. Full circle, uh, yeah. And, and so this was a, a talk that yeah, Malcolm, Malcolm Gladwell did a few months ago. Okay. Um, I, I, don't, I'm, I apologize. I don't know the title no, or anything, but it really looks like I'll put, I'll put at, it in uh, the or something. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. But that's great. I want to Thank check you. it out. I, Malcolm does amazing work and takes um, kind of whether it's obscure or seemingly unconnected series of events and just paints a, a thread that is just un- mind blowing. So I love uh, I love anything he does. Yeah, it's a great storytelling. The next question: uh, You're fam- are you familiar with TED Talks? Yeah. Okay. So one, the scenario is you have to give a TED talk, but the rule is it has to be something that you're not really well known for. So um, what would you want to go and explore and share with everyone? I think I'm, uh, I don't know if I'm known for it. I mean, I'm a huge Alexander Dumas fan. Um, And I would love, you know, there's been some great books recently about uh, him, about his father, uh, the general. I would, you know, like to give a talk about Dumas living in the world today as a huge being an extraordinary writer, mm-hmm. uh, character, someone who loves to travel. You think about him, you know, he traveled in the mid-1800s as probably the most celebrated, most well-known writer in the world. He went to, you know, Russia, 
Switzerland, and he traveled all over the world, Spain, uh, Algeria. And, you know, he regales he, he us with these stories about how people knew him, knew his writing. And it made a huge difference in terms of, you know, traveling uh, while black <laughs> throughout the world, um, just the popularity. So if you imagine uh, Jay-Z uh, moving around the world now, that was Dumas in 18, you know, in the mid-1800s. And that fascinates me. And I think that's, you know, that's, I think a lot about that with us, with, with Urban Squash, with our kids, because those kids with those, you know, running around uh, High Park, running between the Harvard Club and the Yale Club in New York with backpacks, uh, with rackets sticking out. They're just moving around, moving through the world, traveling well and having great stories to tell about their squash abilities and their academic achievements. Coming full circle as well. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be, that'd be fascinating. Well, the last question we have is what book you might be able to, or books you might be able to recommend and why? Oh gosh. I, I, you know, we we talked about this. I I thought the question was going to be what, if there was a product, if there was a thing (laughs) that I would, I would recommend. You can, Um, you can do that too, if you want. Oh, good, good. Put a little switcheroo. little, <laughs> this uh, I've discovered, you know, with uh, you know, always rolling around on these rollers, trying to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I have these really bad IT bands, but I discovered this little thing. It's a sphere. It's a vibrating ball about the size of a grapefruit, and I, you know, it's, I can set it off. Uh, it's vibrating, and I can roll around on that thing, and it's just amazing how well I feel afterwards. I'm really, I'm, I'm a total. What is it called again? Ball. It's it's a spear. I don't know the exact name of it. I apologize. Um, it's just a little ball about the size of a grapefruit, and it vibrates. Well, I, I've and, been using. Uh, I think it's a great tight athlete. Yeah, I have tight IT bands and tight everything, and so I've always I've been using a lacrosse ball, which I thought was good. But this sounds even better, so I'll definitely have it's to amazing. Uh, check it out. <laughs> it's amazing. Yep. And to answer your question about the book, the book is the push out. Uh, it's the criminalization of of black girls in schools. Um, it's by uh, a fantastic uh, a sociologist, Morris, Monique Morris, uh, out of California, and she just talks about the struggle that our kids have to go through to get through school. And, you know, it just, it really shines a light on the issue that I hadn't realized. And I hadn't realized how hard it is with regard to our criminal justice system and, you know, how things have evolved. I mean, when I worked for the Kennedy family and this David Hackett, I mean, we were looking at juvenile justice issues back in the 60s and 50s, but things really haven't improved all that much. And the book is uh, called uh, Push Out. It seems like a relevant topic these days. Can't wait to learn more about it. You know, that kind of brings us to an end of, of this interview. But thank you again for taking the time today and, and sharing your story along the way and for everything that you've done for the sport and continue to do. People like you that really make a huge impact on the fabric of squash in the U.S. Well, thank you, Connor. Again, thank you for inviting me to support you. I love the game. Uh, it's been an extraordinary journey. And I'm looking forward to the future. All right. Well, on that note, until next time. Until next time. I'll leave that continue Well, thank you so much for your time today and for joining us on Squash Radio. We hope you enjoyed this latest episode. But before you leave, we just have one quick last message. As you know, Squash Radio wants to help tell some of the best stories from Squash World. But in order to do that, we want and welcome your help. Do you know a person or a story that involves squash that is interesting, funny, moved you, you care about, reflects your passion for the sport, well, share it with us and let's try and get it out there on the air. You can email me at squashradio at gmail.com 
or reach out to us on social media. Again, thanks for your time. And well, until next time, be well and have fun. Bye.